back into our series, Face to Face with the Gospel. This week we pick up in Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 to 25. Now we've spent the, the past four weeks looking at the Gospel. You know, I've stood up here at this pulpit and proclaimed to you the, Paul's message of salvation by grace, which he's been proclaiming to the church in Galatia. But as we stop to think about it, as, as we work through the implications of salvation by grace, it can, it can cause us to pause. It can cause us to, to think a little bit. Because if salvation is by grace alone, if we are free from the law, does that mean we don't have to obey the law? If I'm always saved only by Christ's performance and not by my own, why should I strive to live a holy life? Do I have any obligation to keep God's law? And why? The big question then, as we sort through those, those smaller questions, the big question becomes, as a Christian, what is my relationship to God's law? In our passage today, Paul addresses this crucial question. But before he does, he takes a trip back into the Old Testament, as he's seemed to have a penchant for doing here in the beginning of Galatians. We're going to go back a little bit, and, and he's going to attempt to bring home the truth of the promise, the gospel, to the Galatians. So we pick up in Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 to 25. We read, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Let's pray. God, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word, for your word is truth. And Lord, I, I pray that you would speak through your word today, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. Praise in your name. Amen. Paul loves history, doesn't he? In the first few verses of the passage today, Paul takes us back 
to the Old Testament, to Abraham, to Genesis 15, where we read about the covenant promise that God made to Abraham. So Abraham, at this point, his name's actually Abram. He hasn't been given Abraham yet. And he's, he's kind of struggling. You know, God has, God has promised him at this point that his, his descendants are going to be more numerous than the stars. And, and Abram is like, oh, that sounds great. This sounds fantastic. But, but he's getting older, and his wife's getting older, and he's, he's starting to struggle with this, and, and he's, he's kind of wrestling with God a bit here in, in, in uh, Galatians, I mean, sorry, Genesis 15. And, and then God, God's like, all right, here's the deal. I'm going to make a covenant with you. And so if, if we read in, in uh, verse 9 of Genesis 15, he said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And, and this is what they did in the Old Testament when they were going to make a covenant with somebody, right? So if, if you and I were, were going to make a covenant together, we'd take this assortment of animals, this cow, this goat, this uh, chicken, this, this dove, and, and what they do is they cut them in half. Like, tear them in half. And then they separate the two halves. And when you're going to make a covenant with somebody, you walk between the halves. It's a little gruesome, right? It's a little... It's a little dark, maybe, but it's, it's a memory. It's, it's, it's saying, if I do not keep my word, if I don't keep my side of this bargain, this deal, this covenant, then may I be like these animals. Tear me in half. May I be separated. May I be broken. Covenants were a big deal back then. If I do not keep my end of the bargain, let me be ruined. Let me be torn in half. Let me be torn asunder. Now, typically, when these covenants were done, it makes sense for both people to pass between the, uh, between the animals. That's, that's how this was done. But if we read in Genesis 15, 12, we read that a great sleep fell upon Abram. And then if we go a little further, in verse 17, we read that a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. Abram didn't. He was knocked out. He was put to sleep. He was in a deep slumber. And then a, a flaming pot, fire pot, and, and a flaming torch move between the pieces. God moved. Between the pieces. God made the covenant. It was God who passes between the halves. And in doing so, in being the only one to go between the halves, he is taking the entire covenant on himself. He's taking the entire covenant. So Abram doesn't have any role to play in this covenant that he has now made with God. God has taken it all on himself. And in this way, the covenant that God makes with Abram is a promise. It is from one party to another, from God to Abram, from God to us. There's nothing that we can do to keep the covenant. Man did not pass between the halves. Only God did. He has made a covenant with man. And in the Old Testament, they had covenants. This is something that they did. 
Today, we have things that are similar, and, and Paul mentions one to, to make his point, to prove his point in our passage today. The word that is translated man-made covenant in verse 15 is the legal word for will. We have wills today, right? We're familiar with, with wills, our last will and testaments. When I die, this is what I want to happen. This is what happens with my estate. I, uh, I'll never forget it. We were in uh, Buffalo, New York at the time, and my mom and dad had, had flown out to come and visit Karen and I, and, and we had gone out for dinner with mom and dad, and, and we were driving back to the house, and, and mom's like, all right, we'd, we'd like to get a little serious for a minute. Whenever your mom says that, it's like, oh boy, like what's coming, right? Are you going you gonna to tell me someone's sick, you know, is, is something scary about to get dumped on us? Like what's, what's happening here? And uh, I remember mom, mom and dad were like, you know, we just went through the process of doing a living will. We just went through the process of doing a will. We haven't solidified it yet. We haven't turned it in. Like it hasn't all been, been set in stone yet because we have a question for you. We would like to know if you and Karen would be willing to be your younger brother David's legal guardians should anything happen to us. I was like, okay, this isn't quite the serious question that I was anticipating, but, but there's something that goes into that, right? Like, we've got to think through that. Like, that's, that's my younger brother. I have a really good relationship with my younger brother. We have, we have a good time together. I don't know why that would be a problem. You know, I, Karen and I, well, we've got to talk about it. We can't... I, at that point in time, I had realized that I'm not allowed just to answer for the both of us. I, I did need to have some conversation with my wife. So we talked about it, and then we decided, yeah, you know, that's something that we would be willing to do. We'd be willing to be legal guardians for, for my younger brother. And so mom and dad, they put that into their will. It was in stone. You know, a will is a binding contract. It's not something that changes and fluctuates with circumstance. Karen and I accepted to be my brother's legal guardians should anything happen to my parents. And at the time, it, it wasn't that hard of a decision to make. We had a good relationship, and, and you know, thankfully, praise the Lord, we still do. Love my brother very much, but, but let's play the what-if game. What if my brother and I had a falling out? What if something happened and I, I offended him deeply? Then he lashed out at me, right? I mean, this isn't a hard, hard scenario to figure out how, how this works out. He lashed out at me, and, and now we both end up hurting parties. I've offended him. He's offended me. We're not in a good place anymore, and then the unthinkable happens. My mom and dad are in a, in a tragic accident. And now David and I are left with each other. He's coming to live at my house. My hard work is going to be earning money to feed this person that I'm feuding with. Because it's in the will, and because a will is a binding contract, we can't just go back and change it. It's done. This is what is happening. It doesn't matter how much neither of us like the situation, it, it doesn't matter what we think is fair, it's happening. Because circumstances don't affect the binding power of the will. Just because things have changed, just because new feelings and emotions, new circumstances have been introduced, the binding power of the will is not broken. It is unchanged. 
It is unmoving. And that is the point that Paul is making about the promise. The covenant promise that God made to Abram. He is saying that just because the law of Moses, the Mosaic law, had been given, had been introduced, that doesn't mean that it was added to or had any effect on the original covenant that God made with Abram. The law came 430 years after the promise made to Abram. Its coming does not annul, it does not break God's covenant, God's promise. Just because it appeared that circumstances had changed, the introduction of the law, that does not affect the binding power of the promise. Just as my relationship with my brother does not affect the binding power of my parents' will. So if the law of Moses doesn't add to the promise, what does it do? Why is it here? What, what, what is the purpose of the law? First, let's take a look at why it's here. Find that in verse 19 of our passage today. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. It was added because of transgressions. It was added because of sin. We have the law because of sin. The false leaders in Galatia had been trying to make the point that the law is about what we must do to be Christian. They had put salvation into the hands of the law. But here we read that the law was not given to tell us about salvation. It was given to tell us about sin. It was given to tell us about sin. And we read further in verse 21 that if the law could give life, then righteousness would indeed come by the law. That if the law could save us, that if we could be in right standing before God by simply obeying His commands, then that would be how, you know, then the law would, would have saving power. Then the law would be able to give life. But the law does not have power to give life. As one scholar puts it, the law has the power to show us that we are not righteous, but it cannot give us the power to be righteous. Okay? So then what's the law's purpose? That's why it's here. What's, what's the law's purpose? Paul outlines two purposes of the law. In verse 23, it is referred to as a guardian. The Greek words used refer to being protected by military guards. These are guys that know what they're doing. This is serious. Military guards. And in verse 24, the Greek word refers, refers to a tutor. One that teaches us. One under whose supervision we live. Both of these relationships remove freedom. A tutor, a military guard. They are relationships based on rewards and punishment. It is not an intimate relationship. It's not a personal one. It's cold. It's distant. We're treated as children, or, or worse, prisoners. 
The law puts us in a jail we cannot leave, and it gives us instruction that we cannot follow. The law, if we're really listening to it, continually emphasizes that we need a righteousness, a power, a love for God that is beyond ourselves and beyond the law. We need salvation by grace. So what is the purpose of the law? It points us to the cross. The law points us to the cross. John Stott says this in his commentary on Galatians. After God gave the promise to Abraham, he gave the law to Moses. Why? Why did the promise of Abraham come before the law to Moses? He had to make things worse before he could make them better. The law exposed sin. It provoked sin. It condemned sin. The purpose of the law was to lift, to lift the lid off of man's respectability and disclose what he, what he is really underneath. Sinful, rebellious, guilty, under the judgment of God and helpless to save himself. And the law must still be allowed to do its God-given duty today. We must never bypass the law and come straight to the gospel. To do so is to contradict the plan of God in biblical history. No man has ever appreciated the gospel until the law has first revealed him to himself. It is only against the inky blackness of the night sky that the stars begin to appear. And it is only against the dark background of sin and judgment that the gospel shines forth. The law points us to the cross. So that gets back to the big question, right? As a Christian, what is my relationship to God's law? I'm focused on the cross. The purpose of the jailer and tutor have been achieved. Does this mean that we can now forget about it? That we can move on from it? That it no longer applies to us since its purpose has been fulfilled? Can I now live as if the law is not there? What a human question. It comes straight from our sinful nature. In asking this question, we're really asking, how far is too far? Now that the chains are off, now that there is no longer condemnation, do I get to live however my sinful heart desires? Do I have the golden ticket to live however I choose to? Absolutely not. As had been previously uh, pointed out, the law was our tutor, our supervisor, until Christ entered our lives. And so the law was like a guardian over a child until that child reaches maturity. So let's, let's just stretch that picture out a little further. Let's, let's just take that a step further. In, is the intent, the purpose of raising children, that when the child grows old enough, reaches maturity, that he or she can cast off all the values of the parent or guardian and live in a totally different way. Now granted, that happens, but is that the purpose of raising children? Is that the intended outcome? Are the instructions, the guidelines, only for childhood? 
No. As parents, we, we instill values in our children. We raise them in a certain way. We, we raise them with the hope that they're going to become, uh, you know, that they're going to live a certain way, that they're going to have certain values instilled in them. And if all goes well, the mature child, the adult, is no longer coerced, you know, no longer forced into obedience as they had been, but that the values instilled in them as children have been internalized, have become personal, have become their own. Every Christmas, I'm reminded of this. We had a, we had a tradition in our, in our house that uh, on, on Christmas Eve, now, I, I grew up in a Norwegian house, and my understanding is that Norwegians open their presents on, on Christmas Eve, and then most of the rest of us open them on Christmas Day. Now, my mom and dad kind of had this, like, waging war between each other. Mom had always opened on Christmas Eve, and dad had always opened on Christmas Day, and so they came to a compromise where the presents from mom's side of the family, we could open on Christmas Eve, and then the presents from dad's side of the family, and from mom and dad, we opened on Christmas Day. So we had a little bit of both, and it was great. You know, as a kid, I didn't know any difference, so I loved it. And every Christmas Eve, we'd have the Christmas Eve service, and then we would get together, and every Christmas Eve, dad would read the Christmas story from Luke. Every Christmas Eve. And as a child, I hated that. Because my presents were right there, right? Like, it's time. I waited all day. I had to wait for that service, you know. And, and now uh, we had to wait for dinner, you know. I'm not allowed to, like, scarf there. I had to wait for everybody else anyway. And now it's time to open those presents. And you want me to sit here and listen to the story of Jesus being born again? I mean, we just did this last year, and we just did it the year before. Can we just move on already, Dad? We get it. I know this story. And it's not like you would speed read it. You know, I was like, okay, if we got to do it, can you just burn through it so we can get there? No, it was, man, he read that like he loved it. Because he did. I remember as a kid being like, this is terrible. I am never going to do this to my children. They're going to get to open their presents right away. Well, guess what happens at my house now? <laughs> we take our time. We read the story. The instruction that my father, though at the time I was coerced, at the time I was forced to do this, it wasn't my choice. This isn't what I wanted. It's now being passed down to my children. And I can see them shifting uncomfortably in their seats. You know, reading ahead. All right, I've read it. Can I open my presents now? You're taking too long, Dad. The things that are instilled in childhood, we, we hope, we pray that it would no longer be a coercion, but something that they do as, as they get older. Paul is, is not telling us that we no longer have any relationship with the values of God's law. He is telling us that we no longer view it as a system of salvation. As a Christian, what is my relationship to God's law? Tim Keller puts it this way. The law shows us as we really are. And so the law points us to Christ and to see Christ as He really is, our Savior, the one who obeyed the law on our behalf and then died in our place so that we might receive the promised blessing. 
The law allows us to love Jesus and enables us to show our love in grateful obedience to Him. Out of response to God's love and His desire for our lives, we are to let the law instruct our day-to-day living. Out of response to the guiding truth and benefits that the law has shown us, we are to live by it. But it does not inform our salvation. Our salvation was won by Jesus Christ on the cross. As Bill read earlier today, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Free in Christ. God has made us a promise. A covenantal promise, one that cannot be broken, that cannot be added to or taken away from. And it's a promise that says he has done it all. He has done it all. He has performed the work through Jesus Christ on the cross. The demands of the law have been fulfilled. He has done it all. He has done it because he loves us. Because he wants to spend eternity with us. Praise God. And to him be all the glory in all the world. Amen.